Peace be with you. Uh, you got a Bible, open it now, or you can grab a Bible in the seat in front of you. You can turn it on if that's your style. But we're looking at Mark 16 this morning. Mark 16, verse 1 through 8. We've been, uh, over the last few months, we've been going through the entire uh, gospel according to Mark, and, and uh, we come, this is really, you know, we've kind of structured that series in such a way where we landed on the resurrection this morning, and so we'll be done with Mark today, and so if you've been with us throughout that journey, um, you are now completing the book of Mark, which is awesome. So, um, yeah, so let, let, let's hear how he depicts the resurrection scene. This is... Uh, Chapter 16, starting in verse 1, we'll just read down to 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. My youngest uh, daughter this week kind of had a really, um, you know, she just had a big win for her. And it was actually kind of a, um, a little testament for me, <laughs> a good visual for me as I got ready for Easter this week. She, um, she learned how to, uh, she started riding a bike with you no know, training wheels. And that's a, that's a big deal. It's a little, that's a big deal for little tyke. And, um, you know, to be honest with you, as she started this endeavor, I thought, oh my gosh, this is going to be a disaster. Because um, she got on her older sister's bike and she's, she's, she's very little. And, and so her little legs are dangling. They, she can't straddle the bike she's on the seat. She can't, you know, she's quite a bit off, up off the ground. And so I've got to, you know, almost like get her onto the bike and then steady the seat. And then it's like, well, here we go. And, and, and shove her off. And man, she just goes. You know, now to be clear, like she can't break, she can't put her feet down. So you can imagine how this, every time how it ends. Um, and so she just kind of crashes in, in the neighbor's yard every time, um, you know, and it, it's, it's, been, it's, it's been really a delight uh, to watch. And I've been thinking about that and I've just, cause that was not how I was when I was a kid. I was a very timid kid. And so, you know, I just been watching her do that. And the thing about that is I'm not up here to brag about my kids, incredible dexterity or skill or anything like that. I, it, it's more, it's more a visual for the fact that as I thought about her doing that, she, she just has this kind of fearlessness about her. 
Um, that's just how she is. She's just got that kind of courage. Kind of just a little bit reckless at times, but um, she's definitely a courageous kid. And um, I've just love watching that. And I've been thinking all week about where does that kind of courage come from? It's a great little kind of just simple, ordinary illustration, but where does courage like that come from? And I've seen courage like that, uh, particularly in the church, not only in the church, but definitely in the church uh, as a pastor over the years. And I've seen all sorts of courage from people, and um, a lot of times just really in secret and in secretive places and secret uh, ways that nobody really sees. I've seen people with incredible loss experience incredible loss, but they just keep showing up and serve God, serving God. I've seen people give of their resources, thereby to the point year after year, month after month, they keep giving and giving and thereby they actually, you know, they don't live to the same standard comparatively to their peers. It takes a lot of courage to do that. I've seen people who've had to just endure terrible, horrible wrongs. And they just take it in and they, 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 they absorb it and they filter it in a sense and they give something very different back. It's not vengeful. They're just very forgiving. It takes a lot of courage to do something like that. Over the years, I've learned to uh, secretly, these are like my secret little heroes in the church. They inspire me. They, they inspire me of like what's possible, where there's real courage. One of the fascinating things about Mark's concise, no-nonsense style of storytelling, and I've learned a lot through Mark's lens, you know, Mark's vision, his portrait of Jesus. The fascinating thing about Mark's style in telling his story is he's very sure not to write in any courageous heroes that would somehow obscure the view of Jesus. Mm -mm. He's very, very intentional about that. I mean, the disciples um, throughout, you know, they're prominent throughout the whole story of Mark's gospel. Um, but they're only prominent in the sense that they provide, they, 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 they serve as great props to reminding us of how dim-winded and fragile egoed uh, Jesus followers tend to be. That's what they do. You know, we name buildings, you know, think about it. We name a lot of buildings and institutions after these disciples, and which is funny to me, but it, it's, it's helpful only in the sense, um, if you think about it this way, it's only helpful in the sense that they're, they weren't great at anything until after they had been humiliated and then rehabilitated. And so that's what we should think of when we hear these names of these disciples. Nothing will deter Mark from making this story about Jesus, Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' kindness, Jesus' patience, his fortitude, and of course, his victory over evil. If you don't hear anything this morning, just hear this and be reminded of this. The gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the gospel is the wonderful news of a rescue mission not performed by some elite band of brothers or some highly sophisticated covert uh, operation, it is accomplished solely by Jesus, completely by Jesus. As N.T. Wright said, the story of Jesus is the story of the love of God doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's the gospel. But 
if you were to keep reading beyond Mark, if you keep reading the storyline, Mark's gospel and, other, and the other gospels, if you just keep reading, the disciples do in fact change. They do, dramatically. How'd they do it? How did Peter, the gang, all these guys, that, these individuals, these people that, that they're very careful to write in, not as heroes, but, but like I said, as failures in a lot of ways. How did they change? Because they do change. How does it happen? What I would submit to you, what I, my argument for this morning is this. I think these disciples changed ultimately because they finally started to absorb the most frequent command in the Bible the most frequent command in the Bible. It finally got into their heart, it finally got into their heads, it finally got into their bones, and they changed. So what's the most frequent command in the Bible? Class, you know, what, what is it? What is the most frequently commanded thing throughout the library of scripture? It's delivered by God repeatedly, it's delivered by Jesus himself, it's delivered by the angels over and over again when they show up, it's delivered, of course, by the, the apostles when you're in the ending of the Bible, over and over and over again, you'll hear it. What is it? Well, for most people, for a lot of people, and I've been a pastor quite some time now, so I've kind of got a sense of where, you know, I've got a kind of an educated sense uh, and some experience with how people typically would think or answer that question. The most frequent answer to that question is something like this, be good, be holy, don't sin. The, 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 the Crazy thing is, is that's the wrong answer. It's the wrong answer. The most frequent commanded in the Bible is fear not. Don't be afraid. Or in the words of the angel in the scene you just read, don't be alarmed. It's the most frequent command in the Bible. Now, you, if you, you, you are free to say, well, he's just stretching things for an Easter effect and you are free to go consult with the Bible translators or the scholars on the scripture. Trust me, I'm not offended. I have to do it every week. And you will find what I have found that that is, that is absolutely true. It is the most frequent command in the scripture. What if in fact, here's my question for you today on your Easter as you go out this afternoon and have lunch with friends, family, whatever it is that you're going to do? What if, in fact, the main point of everything that God is trying to tell you and get across to you is just this? Trust me, I love you and all will be well. What if that's the sum and the major, the deeper, the, 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 the height, the depth, it all, what if that's the main message that he's trying to tell you? Beyond be good. Get holy. Stop screwing up. Deeper than that, what if that's the, actually the thing he actually wants to say to you? If my claim is right, how would a kind of God like that get that into your head, in my head, and in our hearts? How would he do it? Well, he would, of course, tell us, right? He would say it plainly. You know, he wouldn't mince his words about it. Well, the thing is, is he does <laughs> repeatedly over and over and over again in many forms, you know? I mean, he tells it in story form. He tells it in prescriptive, like direct ways. He just keeps saying it over and over and over again. If you actually look carefully and read your scripture, really almost in every book, basically every book of the Bible, every book in our library of scripture has that message embedded into it. 
Trust me. I love you. All will be well. But the thing is, he didn't stop there. He gave you something, gave us something far grander than just that message. He, 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 he raised his sacrificed son for the sins of the world from the dead. That's what the resurrection, I would argue, is saying. The, the main message of the resurrection is, is here's the proof that God loves you. He's for you. All will be well. It's the proof that he means what he says. Now, the funny thing about this fear thing, this fear not, don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. The, the, the funny thing about a command like that is um, that's actually the command, I think, I, I believe this wholeheartedly. I, I, I believe that's the command that you actually want to hear more than anything else in the world. That's actually what you really want to hear. You wanted to hear it when you, you were a little kid and you actually still wanna hear it now. Midlife, later life, whatever stage you're in. It's the, and so here's the grand irony. <laughs> the good news of the resurrection is that this is the main message that God is saying to you. And it's what you actually really want to hear more than anything. And it's actually the hardest command for you to follow. You, some of you, maybe some of you, don't agree with me. But think about this. Um, we enter into this world as little people, you know, with, with our own unique set of circumstances. You know, we, each of us come from, a, you know, a myriad of different circumstances. And I know a lot of you here, and I, I, I know this to be true. Except there is one commonality, you know. You, you entered into this world as a little person into an adult world. They were running things, apparently. And they weren't great at it, were they? They were quite violent towards each other, quite mean-spirited too, very vengeful. And so we learned right away, this, this is a dangerous place. These adults, you know, I mean, it was a real thing for you when as a kid, when at least on some deeper level, you started to realize these people actually don't know what they're doing. It's terrifying. And so what happens is, is pretty quickly, we all essentially were doing this. We were all trying to figure out how not to be unliked unloved. You really quickly were trying to figure out what it, how do I avoid being abandoned? How do I avoid being discarded? How can I eliminate being mortally wounded? How can I stop that stuff from happening? And at best we managed it, <laughs> at best we managed it with only small scars of tragedy. All of your parents are looking at me like, oh my gosh. I'm gonna do my best I can, I know, but look, the reality is we all, at best, we all manage to get through it with small scars, small failures, small trauma. And I know for some of us, it was a lot worse than others. But no matter the case, no matter your background is, no matter where you came from, we eventually learned that this world isn't completely safe, is it? When you think about it, the only certainty about life is it's uncertain in a lot of ways. And so, because we're human, we're just human beings with limited capacities, we develop a habit of fear deeply, like deep embedded into us. We learn this habit of fear while facing just about anything. You know, I think of like uh, Auden's quote from the age of anxiety, we would rather be ruined than changed. 
We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. That's true. And so because of this, because we're human, because fear gets so deeply embedded into us, we fear our peers and so we just follow or we blend in or we do something very different than that. We just isolate, you know, I'm not gonna do anything. I'm not gonna, I'm not a follower. So we isolate and we subversively have this life of, you know, this maverick protest or something. It's fear. We're afraid we'll never find a lover to marry. Or then we get married and then we become afraid at some point or another that maybe this was actually a bad decision or this will somehow end. We're afraid that we'll never get the job that we really want. And then we get the job, some of us, and then we become afraid that we're gonna be found out as incompetent. We're afraid that our finances, the amount that we have, will, will never actually equal the kind of success and happiness that we really crave. And then some of us get tons of money or plenty of money, and then we become afraid that we're gonna lose it. Right? It's fear. Over and over and over again. That's the little stuff, kind of. And then although we manage to maybe avoid that stuff or get through that, you know, eventually we live long enough. Eventually we get fearful about every little ache and pain that starts coming on with more regularity. And we look for ways to distract ourselves because the simple fact is, is that science hasn't fixed this mortality thing. And these are, like I said, just the everyday normal stuff, the ordinary stuff. I, you know, I, I haven't even, I haven't even, I'm not going to get into gender, government, and guns because it's Easter. <laughs> but you know, there's fear there too. A lot of fear. If you're open to what I'm saying, that fear is a problem, you know. Fear has been there since the beginning for me. And I would love, I would love to live a life where I started to get a handle on my fear. If you're open to what I'm saying, that I would encourage you to be reminded and get open to the fact that this is what the resurrection is claiming. And it goes beyond just merely believing that Jesus raised bodily from the dead which makes him truly the son of God. And by the way, that is an absolutely crucial step that he was raised bodily from the dead and he is truly the son of God, come for us. That is a crucial first step, but that is not the only step. It also means getting in touch with what that means. Like what are the implications of that? And it means that God who created us it was well aware of the mess that we've gotten ourselves into and loved us too much to let us continue on trying to deal with the evil in our world and our own, with our own limitations. Like he just knows we were not capable of dealing with this mess of a problem that we have created. He loved us too much. And so the, therefore he came and stooped down in the flesh, right? He came on to do that and to express to us that he is perfectly capable of dealing with the evil that exists here. And he will see it through all the way to the end. 
You see, when Jesus got up and walked out of the tomb, it wasn't just a fearful announcement to evil. It was a fearful announcement to fear itself that plagues you, that is at the root of your life. And you're, some of you might be sitting here this morning thinking, the root issue of my life is like sex stuff. That's the issue. The root of my issue is money stuff. The root of my issue is this, this ailment. The root of my, my, my issue is my anger. The, my issue is my, my bitterness. That's my issue, pastor. Well, what's driving it? What do you think's driving that stuff? What do you think's driving the greed? What do you think's driving the lust? What do, you, what do you think drives your, I mean, all of it is fear. Fear. You're afraid. Me too. You know? It's not like you, you, you got through puberty and you hit a point and you go, oh, I'm not afraid anymore. You just masked it with successism and perfectionism. It's fear. That's the announcement of the resurrection that God is saying, yeah, you, know, you do realize that this is the issue and I've come to help you with it, to fix it. And I'm not saying, by the way, I'm not saying any of this is easy. So don't get mad at me. I get it. I'm, I'm well acquainted with fear. <laughs> No one gets resurrection belief. No one gets resurrection courage or resurrection calm upon its first proclamation. It's why in part I like Mark's version of the resurrection story. Mark's purpose in, in his telling of the resurrection isn't just to say, well, although no one expected it to happen, it actually really happened. That in part is what he's saying in verses one through eight. Because you gotta notice the, the, you know, these women that go to the tomb they didn't go to witness a resurrection. That's Mark's kind of first point that he's making and telling you the story. You know, Jesus had predicted, he had told them repeatedly, I'm gonna die and then in three days, I'm gonna raise up. I don't know, did they have earbuds in? Like, I don't know what they were doing, but he told them, but they are not going to the tomb to witness a resurrection. They are going to the tomb out of reverence to cover a dead body. That's what they're going there to do, which was Jewish custom back then. But Mark is always telling it just like it was, like just like it happened. And what happened, what actually happened for them was just shock and what? What was the last word you read? They were afraid, fear. The first word, it's so funny, right? The first word out of the angel's mouth when they enter into the tomb, what's he say to them? Don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. And yet Mark, <laughs> Mark is so sure to include this at the end here at verse eight. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonished, astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for what? They were afraid. I was laughing contemplating this all week. We should relate to that little scene. You're like, well, I've never been in a tomb. No, you think about it. Sunday morning, you know, when this takes place. Every Christian since this scene has been dealing with the same Sunday irony. You get up in the morning, Sunday. You rise up, you get dressed up, 
You come into the church to get a truth. You leave and you do the opposite. Me too. It's the same thing over and over and over again, on repeat. We hear the truth, we leave, we're struggling by, with dealing with it by the time we're eating our lunch. And it's usually, I would say, because deep, actually somewhere deep within us, we're still so deeply endowed with the fear that we're so used to. And so it's hard to let go of the fear. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. It's a strange thing to think that we would rather be ruined than change. But that's the human condition. And so I, I, I'm under no illusions. This is very difficult. This is a hard thing. I would just say this, until we come to terms with the fact that this is the main claim that the resurrection is making, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Until we come to terms with that fact that this is the claim and that it's gonna, we're gonna have to be constantly wrestling with it. Well, I would just say that this whole church business and the worship stuff that we do is not gonna ever have much an effect on you. I would just say this, um, you might turn out to be decent, reverent people, but you will not be resurrected people. And a lot of people are living their lives a lot like the women before they actually encountered the angel. In other words, a lot of people are living their lives reverent. They show up, they serve, they try to be a good person because they think that that's what God wants. And that's all he wants. And they need to realize that God is not in need of our good deeds. He's in need of us realizing that we needed the resurrected Jesus for us. My suggestion is, whether you're here every week, um, and many of you are, or, or, or you just popped in um, this morning for a yearly shot of religious adrenaline, which I'm happy about. But wherever you're at in that scenario, if you're interested in the resurrected life, like actually really interested in it, you're gonna have to keep working out this truth and keep it alive in your imagination because it just slips out constantly. You're gonna to have to constantly figure out, okay, how do, I, how, do I, how do I commit myself to this claim of, and keep it fresh in my imagination that God loves me more than I can imagine and all will be well. All will be well. How are you gonna do that? Well, there's lots of things I could say, but this would just be the one main critical piece underlying a kind of persevering commitment to that claim. And it's the fact that Jesus isn't mad at you with your fits and starts, your struggles, your, your moments, may it be many, where fear gets the best of you. I would just say this, rest assured Jesus is not mad at you that that's what's happening. Because you have to ask yourself when you read Mark's gospel or really any of the gospels, because in this sense, they're all very, very similar. You have to ask yourself when reading the gospels straight through, where in the world at the tomb, where in the world are the disciples? It's the women that go. Where are they? And it's not like I said earlier, it's not like Jesus didn't tell them that this was what he was gonna do. But 
to be fair, in their world and in their minds, dead people don't get up. And fear doesn't just dissipate. They're, they, they're, they've scattered, they're, they, they've abandoned the situation. They're, they're sitting likely, they're sitting very depressed with their dashed dreams, life's hardships, and their own shame, you know? You haven't exactly been stellar followers. But the message you see here from Jesus through the angel is very clear. Verse seven, but go, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he's told you. Now, why does Jesus set up the meeting? Why does he do that? Why is that the main message? Think of all the things Jesus could have said to the angel to say, here, make sure you tell them this. Ta-da, you know? But this is the thing. Hey, tell them this and Peter. I'm gonna go have a meeting with him. Now, why does he do it? Is this so he can just get a last word in, you know, the way you and I would feel, the way I definitely would feel after somebody really misunderstood me, didn't believe me, didn't trust me, and then I had vindication? You know what I would wanna do? Told you so. Told you so. And you didn't believe me, did you? But that's not what Jesus is interested in. We just have proof of that. He's not interested. He, he doesn't want to just see their shamed faces for sleeping on him in his moments of dread, for not believing him enough, for not, you know, for their scattering and running off when things got violent and scary. No, 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 no. He wants the meeting so he can say this. And you can read this for yourself in Luke 24, verse 36 through 43, the whole thing, just read it. But here's, you know, basically it's this. He goes and sets up this meeting and he, when he meets them, he says this, peace to you. Do you know that's why I say peace be with you every time before I preach? Do you know that's why? Because everybody comes in here afraid, mostly. You're afraid. And I just, in some way, I'm trying to communicate. I'm not mad at you. Your dad might be mad at you. Your mom might be mad at you. Your spouse might be mad at you. Your boss might be mad at you. I can assure you, I'm not mad at you. I don't want you to be afraid right now when you're sitting here. Jesus comes up to them, meets with them and says, peace to you. And then, he, and then he doubles down on it and he says this, don't be troubled. I, I'm aware of what you did. I, yep, I, and I told you guys it wasn't gonna go well, but I'm not mad, right? And I love how then he's just like, you guys got any food? I'm hungry. Let's eat. I love that. And then of course he he has this meeting with them so he can then explain to them, listen, not only am I not mad, I, I wanna send you supernatural help from the Holy Spirit because you need to be encouraged. And so we shouldn't miss this either, you know. We shouldn't miss the fact that he singles out Peter with the angelic message. He singles him out. Verse seven, tell his disciples and Peter, and Peter. So realize this, Jesus doesn't ignore, because Peter has failed immensely. Realize Jesus doesn't ignore sins and failures. He covers them. There's a big difference. He covers the sins. Peter is singled out, not because he's super important, you know, Peter, he's the rock. 
That's not why Peter is singled out. Peter is singled out because he's the chief of sinners. And imagine what Peter is feeling in this moment. He's for sure wallowing in shame. He might not even be, this is conjecture, but he might not even be with the other disciples because after three denials, man, he's probably thinking, well, I don't belong there anymore. I don't fit. I've screwed up royally. I suggest, you know, Peter had failed so badly and Peter needed to be particularly rehabilitated. This singling out to me shows that Jesus is aware that Peter doesn't just need a resurrected Jesus. He needs a resurrected Jesus who isn't mad at him and isn't interested in lectures. And it's those realities that come flooding in on Peter and the other guys and their life and into their heart. And that's what actually transforms them, changes them dramatically. So I would just say this, you know, my, my daughter earlier was talking about her. She hasn't slipped outside of the house once on her own and grabbed that bike and taken off without me. Not once has she done that. Oh no, oh no, 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 no. I've, I've got to go out there. I've got to strap the helmet on. You know, I've got to witness the heroism. You know, I've got to witness it. And I got to, you know, get her on the seat. I got to be there. I gotta, my presence is, has to be there. And it's not like, to be clear, it's not like I chase her down the sidewalk, you know. Not at all. I, I get her on, I hold her steady, I set her off, and she pedals off. And like I said earlier, sometimes she does crash, yes. But after some tears and a Band-Aid, usually, right? She keeps after it anyway. She keeps going. Something tells me that in her little head, this fearlessness, this courage, this fearlessness is actually just tied to my presence and my posture. It's not this innate, you know, personality or anything like that. It's actually tied somehow to my presence. In her little head, I think she's got this idea that where my father is present and smiling, no matter the bumps and bruises that come along the way, all will be well. And for her, that changes everything. She just goes. So what I would leave you with is this. What if every day Jesus is alive and present and whispering to you, why are you so afraid? I've risen. I'm not mad at you. And I go out ahead to meet with you. I will see you face to face. What if that is what he is saying to you? All will be well. You don't have to be afraid. Now, I would just say this. If, if, if that's true, if that's actually what Jesus is whispering to you all the time, all the time, then what would change? What little thing, what big thing would change for you? How would it change the way you speak, you spend, you serve, whatever it is, the way you forgive? What would change?
My hope is, is that you would think about that as you come to the table of communion this morning. Because it's not in my ability to really understand or fully comprehend and proclaim over you what that change should be. I, I think that's something for you to work out. But I do hope that you believe that this is what Jesus is saying to you. And so after a few moments, and you're invited to come forward to this station or to this station and take part. This bread for us represents the body of Christ broken for us. And this cup of wine represents Christ's blood shed for us. And the scriptures tell us to do this as often as we gather in remembrance of him. That's what we're doing when we take a piece of the bread and off of the loaf and we dip it in the wine or the juice. Both are up here. We are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. We're proclaiming that because he's died and he's resurrected, I don't have to be afraid anymore. And so in spite of my failures, in spite of the uncertainties of life that still lie ahead, in spite of the bumps and bruises that inevitably will come, what if all actually will be well? What would it change? So if, you're, if, if, if Christ is Lord to you, if, 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 you're, if the Christian reality is that it's something you're trying to work out in your life, it doesn't mean you're sinless. It, it just simply means that you're somebody who's actually trying to work out this idea of repentance and faith and all of that. If that's real for you, you're invited to come forward. You don't have to be a member in this church. Like if you're new here, you don't have to be a member. Jesus just must be Lord to you in some way. You're working that out. Let us pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you this morning. You walked out of the tomb and you delivered a death blow to death, to evil, and to fear itself. May that become real to us this morning. May it be something that we work out over time. May we be committed to the process of dealing with our fears. May we trust in you ever more, all the more, knowing that it's because of your sacrifice, it's because of your death, that you look upon us and you smile. May we proclaim that this morning as we leave and maybe go out different. By your spirit, speak to each one of us in a unique and special way in the way that we need to hear. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.